Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're welcoming back Joe Slack. Joe is a guest host on this podcast, a prolific game designer and an educator. His latest title, Mayan Curse, is currently on Kickstarter. Joe, welcome to the binge. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Great to be back, James. Oh, it's great to have you back, my friend. And uh, I'm sure there's going to be some of our audience that's going to recognize your voice as being a, a guest host on the podcast. Oh, man. There, is there anything that you're not working on? Like, you have your hands in everything. It's crazy. Let's just say uh, the, the free time is very limited these days. But yeah, I keep them busy, which is always good. Oh, I can imagine. And I got to say, uh, congrats on your latest campaign, Mayan Curse. Man, it is really, uh, you know, just kicked off in high gear right on day one. So I was really happy for you there when you funded like very, very quickly. I think it was in a few hours. And, uh, and, and myself, this is a game that I had the pleasure of actually seeing, right, in its early stages in, in our local uh, protospiels. And yeah. so it's been kind of cool kind of seeing that evolution right up to the point where it is now on, on Kickstarter. Um, what's what's kind of cool to me is seeing a game that, um, although I know there's been a lot of changes, for the most part, it's it's kind of holistically the same game that I actually got to play myself uh, at the protospiel. There wasn't many changes you made to that, was there? Not a drastic amount since then. Um, of course, the the art and the design and and the yeah. iconography and and a little bit around more the the Mayan culture and civilization. We add a little bit more to the game, um, but yeah, the game from even from an early stage, the the concept of drawing some of these sacred stones, using them to to match up to the the slabs, sliding the slabs, and making progress. That has always been yeah. part of the game, right from the start. It's just been the other things, trying to figure out what kind of puzzles can we introduce? How are the, uh, the temples going to rotate? How are we going to have people compete against each other? Should there be one thing they're all going for and fighting over? Or should there be multiple things they're going for? What are, what are they actually trying to accomplish? Like those are the types of things we had to flesh out and literally took years to go from start to finish to figure out exactly what the best system was going to be. Oh, I can imagine. Now, I, I want to give a shout out to your design partner, uh, Sylvan, uh, as well. Uh, so maybe yeah. we can just give him a kudos. Uh, I know he's kind of your partner in crime now on uh, on a few of your titles. And yeah. I know there's stuff that's still coming down the pipe that I'm super excited about as well that we probably won't cover on this podcast, but I've been able to get sneak peeks to uh, that he's also has hands in. So it's really cool seeing kind of uh, you guys really finding this 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 cool vibe between the two of you that where you're able to play off each other. Um, is this something that uh, you would recommend for other people in terms of how to to do design or or kind of what's been your approach as it comes specifically to to Sylvan? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think if you can find the right partner, it can work really, really well. Um, I've worked with a, a few different designers and it's been a great experience every time, but it's been always a little bit different. So I find if you can find the right partner that complements you. So for example, Sylvan, he just loves the crafting aspects. He'll like, yeah. I'll, I'll show up at his place. I'll be, he'll be like, I've got this, uh, I got this game. Can we, uh, can we check it out? I want to show this to you. Maybe it's something you want to work on together. I was like, cool. How long have you been working on this one for? He's like, oh, this morning. And it looks like almost a brand new, like finished game. Like it's a nearly finished product prototype. Cause he just loves making things that look amazing. He doesn't care if it works right off the bat or not. He'll change it. He'll fix it. He just loves that aspect of it. Yeah. So he loves like that part of the game uh, of it. Um, he's got a lot of really cool ideas 
um, in terms of design and mechanics and has a lot of experience. He's, you know, owns hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games himself. Um, and then from my perspective, I'm, I come at it more from like the analytical kind of aspect. I've got more of like a, a math uh, stats kind of background. And I really like I'm into the mechanics and just trying to figure out getting things to work kind of mechanically first. So together we really pull like the mechanics and the theme together. And quite a lot of our games, you can really see those tied together really well. Um, I also don't mind the, uh, like the interaction with the, the publishers and going out and, and publishing and, yeah. and pitching to them and that kind of thing. And he's, he's more like behind being behind the scenes for that kind of thing. So we work really well together in the types of games that we like, um, and what we bring to it, uh, what we want to do with our games. And so, yeah, if you can find that right partner that has those right matches and you complement each other and you're not just like both liking that same, very same aspect, um, um, you can really work well together. And it also encourages you to, to keep moving the game forward. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he'll have an idea for a game and he brings it to me and I'll be like, oh, and then we can add this. And then he wants to make like the next version of the prototype. And I want to test this next thing out. So it always just keeps things uh, moving forward and getting excited about working on new projects together. It still blows me away that he is a heart surgeon. Yeah. <laughs> He's well, doing I mean, game design as a hobby, right? I know, but you can tell in his prototypes how precision his cuts are and how he does such amazing things with foam board and indentations and circular cuts and everything. Like, I can't do that. Like, I cut things and they're all raggedy and jagged. Yeah. And, and But he he has a touch with that. So uh, I guess it comes from uh, all those skills in the That's upper. a fair point. I don't think I've ever seen... A, a a prototype that he's done that doesn't look beautiful. I mean, I think the challenge in that case, I think I even brought this up when we were talking at the last Spiel, is um, that the challenge is, is that you almost set an expectation with yes. how visually, I mean, the butterfly game that you guys have, you know, it's obviously public. You've been working on this butterfly game for quite a while. And you've seen a lot yeah. of these, uh, these pro spiels, um, but how, um, you know, how beautiful that game is. And um, I mean, production wise, you may not actually be able to get to that kind of a level. Right. Um, Is that, is that fair to say? And do you see that as a risk at all or? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you do set expectations and and there's definitely been times where we put a game on the table and it hasn't played as well. And somebody's like, Oh, I kind of expected this experience or something. And it wasn't quite there. So we try to, as best we can, um, test those games early on ourselves to make sure that they are at least functioning pretty well and hopefully at least somewhat fun, at least to us, uh, yeah. before we bring it out to other people. So at least their experience will be at least decent they can, and they can see where it's going. But yeah, you're absolutely right. If you, if you put uh, something brand new in front of somebody and it, it just doesn't work, it's not functioning, um, you know, they're going to be a little disappointed. They're going to say like, oh, it looks like you've been working on this for a really, really long time and it looks really good, but it just, it doesn't play as, as I expected. So yeah, absolutely. There's an expectation there. I guess the flip side of that is, is if you're going to err on one side or the other, you err on overproducing the game. Um, <laughs> I know that, and I'm guilty of this too. Like when I walk through like a pro spiel event and, you know, I see something that looks polished, I'm more inclined to want to sit down and play test that than something that's just boxes on, you know, drawn boxes on a piece of paper or something that's been sketched out. And that sketched out one may actually be a better game and even play better uh, when you actually to sit down and play it. But it's, kind of that initial, how do I pull people in? Right. And um, so anything you can do to improve that, whether it be, you know, in Sylvan's case where he's doing a lot of this creation himself, there's the game crafter, there's print and play, there's all these different services you can use to make something look, um, you know, somewhat polished. And I try to do that with my games as well as, as I can't think of the last time publicly that I had actually presented a game that didn't have 
some basic artwork and so forth, even if it's just standing artwork to, to give an idea what the story of this game is so that people are more enticed to sit down. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think like, I, I have no problem bringing something that looks pretty rough, at least if it's functional to like a game design event where I know it's just like other game designers and we're just kind of circulating between each other and playing each other's games. And there aren't like high expectations for the art and look of it, but um, certainly when we put out something like Mayan Curse or, or, or something else that has a really nice table presence, people walk by and they want to try it or they want to look at it or they're stopping by at least to look, it, it draws people in. So yeah, once you're past those early stages and you know, the game's at least functioning, if you have something that looks good, I'll be honest, it, it does bring people in, whether it's, you know, publishers seeing it, play testers, other game designers, uh, you're going to get more eyeballs on it for sure. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Protospiels before we get into the Mayan Curse itself. And we're, we're going to do a deep dive on Mayan Curse because I think people need to really check this thing out. It is mm-hmm. it is definitely a, a showpiece, right? When you see it on a table. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Protospiels. There's no secret that you have a lot of games on the go, uh, you know, personally, uh, you and uh, Sylvain working on, uh, I've seen a number of them. How do you, I mean, there's going to be a two-part. First is, how important are those pro spiels to you versus just going out to like a local cafe and play testing? And what do they bring to you that's different than maybe you would get at like a cafe? Yeah, I think I think both are very valuable. Um, when you compare the two, you look at maybe a designer event that they hold every month or a couple of times a month, those are much more frequent. So you have those opportunities to, to get your game out more frequently. Um, quite often it's the same people, sometimes different people coming in, uh, but they're, they're just more frequent, but they're just much shorter. Usually you only have a few hours. Everybody's trying to cram uh, their game in and get to the, everybody else's game. So hopefully everybody has an opportunity to play test theirs. Whereas at a protospiel, Generally, those events are only once a year and they are held all over the place. There's ours in Toronto and then there's uh, others across the U.S. So you can go to multiple of them, but each individual event is only once a year and it's concentrated over two or maybe three or maybe even four days. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's just a much more relaxed environment, I find, because it's not that real time crunch of everybody's trying to get their games in within a few hours. It's like, yeah, you have that much time. If, if you're a designer that just has one game, you can play it with like five or six different groups over the course of a weekend and you can get feedback from all different people you can especially if you bring components or things you can change you can change and tweak it on the fly and then if somebody has a really great suggestion you can implement that and then a couple hours later be play testing again with a whole other group or if uh you're like me and like sylvan uh, where we have a bunch of different games um you know each one of them can get play tested we can bring five or six games to yeah. a protospiel and pretty much expect every one of them to get play tested at least once, maybe even twice if we're lucky. Um, it just depends on how many other play testers are there, uh, what everybody else's commitments are. I mean, you, and the thing about protospiels and, and all game design events is about giving time back as well. You want to give back as much as, as you're taking from other people. Sure. Um, but those events just give you so many opportunities to play test your games multiple times in a more relaxed environment. And people are going out and getting food together and coming back and, it's just, it, it, it just really brings the community together um, in, in such a great way. I often look at these two things. I'll get to part two in a second here, but I often look at, you know, like game cafes versus pro spiels. I see them as both necessary to the process. From my experience, I find uh, a pro spiel um, is often allows me to go pretty deep on some of the mechanics and some of the things that I may have not thought of uh, mechanically in a game, whether this is going to work or not. On the flip side, sometimes I find that the people that are playing are because most of them are game designers, sometimes will lean towards trying to almost 
push it towards something that they would want to create versus what it is, right? And that's where I find that the cafe approach, you know, or getting together with, you know, people who are just not necessarily game designers, but just people who like playing games and get them to try these kind of games is, is more the, is this fun measure, right? And, and, and looking at it at, as the game, as, as it is, as it was meant to be. And am I achieving that particular goal? That audience I usually find at the cafes and so forth, because they're not looking at it with this kind of granular microscope on is every possible mathematical mechanic worked out. And is this, you know, uh, breaking any kind of conventions and so forth. Um, I mean, you kind of more of that surface level feedback. And I think you kind of need both, right? I think they both kind of have to yes. be considered. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I mean, when you're looking at, at your game, obviously, um, the people that are going to be potentially buying your game, your audience, they're the people that have to really love your game and, and, you know, be there to, to back your game or buy it when they see it on the shelf. Um, but game designers can also bring a lot to it as well. They have a lot of experience with different games and they may have uh, solutions to different things or have seen different problems and uh, counted a, a number of times where somebody said like, oh, have you have you checked out the game Cheaty Mages or have you checked out uh, this other game? There's some things that are kind of similar there. It's just yeah. to kind of lead you in the right direction to say like there's other games that maybe have, have solved this problem or that maybe are a little similar to yours. You just want to be careful not to be too similar to that one and break out mm -hmm. in a different way. Um, and also um, have different ideas about uh, maybe maybe how a game uh, might break, um, some different yeah. things about balancing, um, some really like core things that uh, the average player might not pick up on. But you're absolutely right. Um, a game designer can look at your game and give you suggestions in a direction that would be the game that they want to play or the game that they yeah. would design. And, you know, sometimes that would make a great game, but is it aligned with your vision? I always go back to the vision. Uh, if somebody makes a suggestion and it takes a game like in a totally different direction and it's going to become like a take that kind of a game where everybody's attacking each other. And I'm like, that's not really what I wanted. I'm like, thanks so much for the feedback. That's an interesting idea. That might be a totally different game, but in, in my head, I know that's not the game that I'm designing right here. They are very good at trying to break your game, I would say, which is a good thing, right? You want somebody to break your game. So let me just preface that with that's not a bad thing. Um, and so I do find the game designers are very good at that, right? As they will actually try to break, break the game. And I also like how they'll often say, I think I've played enough rounds to give you some feedback. Right. So you don't necessarily need to even finish the game. They'll play it enough so that they can say, okay, here's what my thoughts are on, on kind of the design of the game. I think that's good. Uh, what I've started doing and uh, both in terms of me asking people whose games I'm playing and vice versa, if I'm demoing a game and I have a game designer walk up, I'll ask him this question. I will usually state the kind of mechanic the game is in. like, so my last game cities of Venus had a, um, you know, when mining, you had this random dice element to the game. And the last pro spiel I went to where we actually demoed that game and wanted to get some feedback. And we made a lot of changes based on the feedback. It was great. I mean, there was some stuff in there that I hadn't even thought of. So it was, it was a good, it was a great experience in terms of just polishing that, uh, that game before we launched on Kickstarter. Um, but what I started doing is I started asking people before they sat down, because again, these are game designers. Do you like uh, random dice elements in games you play? And if the answer is no, then I'd say, you know what? It's okay. You don't have to play test this. Uh, you're not going to hurt my feelings because I know they're going to come in with a very skewed view. Mm -hmm. Right. And likewise, same thing is I'll often ask somebody to describe the game, describe this game a little bit to me first before I decide to sit down and play, because I I know if it's a kind of game I typically don't like. So like fantasy type games, right. Or D and D kind of RPG games. It's just not my jam. Right. So 
if that's the kind of game it is, I'm going to do them a disservice by sitting down, taking up a seat, because all my feedback is going to be coming through a lens of, I don't really like these kind of games, right? So for me, I try to both... Um, you know, kind of filter the games I'm going to play test so that I'm I'm given the the best possible um, uh, you know, user feedback that I can is coming from a very positive place. And likewise, if I have somebody sitting down, I'll give them a heads up of, okay, here's the kind of game that we're trying to create, this kind of vision. These are the kind of mechanics from the game. If that's not for you, hey, I, I'm totally cool with that. Uh, no worries. Uh, I'd rather you know, have people that are interested in those kind of mechanics to sit down and give me feedback on, okay, now is that working or not? Um, is, is that kind of a fair approach you think joe or, or how would you approach that it can be i mean you never want to force somebody to play a game that you know they're not going to enjoy though they know yeah. they're not going to enjoy um so i, I think that's pretty fair and or, or at least to uh be asking uh people what type of games they play or if they do sit down and play your game whether or not they know exactly what they're getting into at the end it's it's really helpful sometimes when they'll say something like you know this isn't the type of game i normally would play um, but you know, and some, sometimes they'll have some insights. They'll, they'll say, but I actually like this part of it, or, or it was actually more fun than I expected because yeah. I don't really like this type of game, but yeah, I think that's totally fair. You want to try to focus on the people that are mostly going to be your core audience and not, you know, bring in people that, that would never buy or never play your game. Here's an example. I'm not going to give you a specific example. I'm not going to name names. I'll give you an example. Okay. The last Protoss Spiel. I can't remember if it was time splicers we we're playing, or it might've been the, the roll and write that we we're demoing. And there was one of the playtesters that I've seen, and I've been at a number of approach spiels with this person. So I, I'm starting to understand kind of their 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 play style based on their feedback on on other games. And uh, there was an empty seat, and they're like, "Can can can we play?" And I didn't go through that kind of initial kind of preamble. And the second they sat down, I said to myself, "They are absolutely going to hate this game." Oh yeah. Sure enough, at the end of the game, they're like, "You know what? This isn't my kind of game. These aren't the kind of games I play. I really didn't like it." And I knew I knew it just based on their style. So. For me, it's like, okay, I got to start just being a little more selective on either A, briefing people properly before they sit down so they're not kind of coming in blind, uh, or, or two, just being uh, aware that, okay, this is, you know, if if I know they're going to hate the game, maybe I can focus on, you know, get them to kind of steer them towards, give me some feedback on this specific element here that I'm trying to figure out. So yeah. that was my experience there. Um, with your, the, I'm going to get now back to the part two of my earlier question though, which is, when you have so many games, how do you decide which one is kind of going to go next? So my like my and Chris is one of like four that I played at the last Pro Spiel, all of which I thought were pretty much ready to go. Hmm. What was your what was the decision process to kind of get you to say this is the one we're going to go with now? There were a few reasons uh, we went with my and Curse. Um, I think the, the as kind as, as you were to say that the other ones you felt like they were kind of <laughs> polished. I, 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 we kind of felt that they were uh, a lot newer, uh, a little greener, maybe not like, you know, starting off, but maybe not quite finished polished games yet. Yeah. Um, so we we felt that Mayan curse had, um, uh, a little bit more experience behind it. It was kind of more ready to go because we've been working on it for quite a while. Um, so that was one of the reasons we think we've, we had finally uh, locked into, what the uh what the right system was um and and we'd been play testing it, it work was working really really well um so we 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 kind of felt like there's not much more we can do to this game other than you know continue to you know dive down a little bit more into like the solo mode and get it kind of finalized but it was otherwise pretty much ready at that point mm. um and when i'm uh, when i'm deciding to uh pitch a game to a publisher or publish it myself 
one of the big filters I go through is, is it on brand? Is, does it, does it match the crazy, like a box brand, which is really puzzly games that make you feel good. And quite yeah. often they can be played solo, but also with other people. And, um, my curse hit that. Um, and it also was similar to relics of Rajavahara in it, that it was an adventure theme. It kind of felt Indiana Jones like kind of thing. So it was like, mm-hmm. Hey, there's, there's some attachments there too. So I don't have to go out and find a whole new audience. It's not like when I've got like a party game or like a very dry Euro, uh, that's going to be pitched to a publisher that has that kind of an audience. That's what I'm going to go with. Yeah. Um, so it, it fit that mold really well as well. Um, one of the things we're really considering is how can we present games that really stand out from others? Cause you know, there's like 5,000 or more games coming out on Kickstarter every year yeah. and Mayan curse. It has great table presence. We felt a lot of people really were attracted to that. It had really great symbols and the sliding and, and the rotating everything. So those kind of things really made us think like this, this has a, a good chance. It stands out. It's different. And people are going to be interested in it based on the theme and the mechanics and how it looks on the table. And certainly I think photography, and I'm just showing on the screen here for people who are watching live or on the replay, uh, the photography. I mean, this is clearly one of those games that um, you know is going to photo well, right? And you're going to have some good marketing images for uh, for your campaign page. Um, one thing that, did, uh, that I did notice about this game is just the number of components. And I thought about this even when I saw this at Protospiel was, ooh, how expensive is this game going to be to make? Um, how much research did you have to do on this one? Or did you have a good handle on how are you going to manufacture it? Like it's got kind of this, this wheel that turns at the end. You've got these different sliding pieces, which are double-sided and so forth. You got your bag and everything that comes with the game. Um, so, you know, there's some elements here that probably you haven't done. I don't think on other games in the past, was there any learnings here for you? Or did you have this all kind of like scoped out quite well ahead of time? Absolutely. I think that was one of the questions too, when we were, when we were deciding on what was going to be the next game we launched and we thought, okay, my curse looks like the strongest contender. And we had to uh, go to our manufacturer and say, okay, how much would this actually cost to produce? Is this actually even feasible? What would the yeah. price be uh, based on, you know, the, uh, the cost for manufacturing? And, you know, we got quotes back and, and thought, okay, you know what? It, it's actually within a decent realm. It, it's yeah. a little on the pricey side, um, but it's going to look really great. And, and we thought that, you know, backers would, would support it at that level. Um, but there were definitely a lot of things, uh, component wise that we looked at and we, we've kind of changed and looked at, um, we've, we've got a lot of stuff that's going to be uh, cardboard, but upgrading through stretch goals to, mm. to wooden components, uh, like all the, oh, wow. uh, Stelle monuments and, uh, the cameras and upgraded meeples that we're working on the stretch goal for right now. So some of those things are basically, um, as we get more backers, we can go up to the next tier. So we can, instead of ordering 500 copies, we can order a thousand copies, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And when you do that, the price point gets better so we can add in more stuff. So part of that was, okay, we're going to strip it down a little bit, but we know it's going to do well enough that we can add some of these cool things back in. And we've got some other things, uh, uh, some surprises that we don't want to uh, say say too soon uh, coming for later in the campaign. If it does really, really well, uh, they're going to upgrade the experience even more. Oh, that's amazing. Can you can you explain to our audience kind of what Mayan Curse is and kind of the the essence of how to play this game? I'm going to show it on screen while you're talking if that's if that's cool. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a one to six player adventure game. And basically in the game, you are explorers trying to find this secret 
ancient city that can only be viewed uh, from from this temple that's been discovered. Um, so you go in there exploring, and how you move along is you draw sacred stones from a bag, and these have symbols on them, and you have to match up these to the ones on the board. You get to slide three of the slabs, three spaces basically on your turn, uh, in order to try to line things up. So you can try to get the the furthest path to try to make the most distance up. But you can also collect knowledge along the way. So you're seeing these monuments along the way. And uh, once you go past them, you get to pick them up and you get the, the knowledge points based on them. And once you progress a little further, you're going to trigger some boulders. They're going to start rolling back towards the entrance. And as you're going towards the temple, you're going to have to make that decision. Do I go all the way to the top of the temple? Because um, all the monuments you're seeing, they, they range, they, better, they get better as you go along um, up, up to six points, which is the max you can get. But then if you can get to the top of the temple and take a picture, you get one of these little camera tokens and it's worth 15. So it's worth quite a bit, but you're taking a huge risk by going that far because you got to still got get all the way back out. So it's amongst all the players. Um, who gets out before all three boulders have blocked the entrance, whoever has the most knowledge points at the end wins. But doesn't matter how much knowledge you collect if you get stuck in the temple because you're going to be trapped there forever. Yeah, I can say when I played it, I, it was a blast. And uh, I almost made it. I was right at the at the <laughs> exit and the last boulder closed on, sealed me in. <laughs> so I was a goner when I played, but uh, it was cool. It was, it, I hadn't played a game like this before, which was, got me really excited because I always love it when there's like a new experience, right? When you play a game and you be like, oh, this is something I haven't really done before. This is kind of different. Uh, that's a good thing, right? I seek this out constantly at uh, my game nights is try to find something I haven't played yet. I'm I'm always saying to people, hey, you know, if you've got a game that's kind of a little bit different than we've been playing so far, like bring it out. Let's let's kind of mix it up. Let's get some new experiences on the table. And this one, I would say, certainly gives you that kind of experience vibe when you're playing it, right? Like it actually feels like you're almost in the in a, like in a movie, right? Like Indiana Jones kind of going down the tunnel and the boulders chasing you as you're trying to run out with the treasure. It's uh, it's super cool. Um, where did this idea originally come from? Like, how did you guys uh, come up with this idea? Oh my goodness. So years ago, um, Sylvain brought this prototype of, uh, it just had these sliding slabs, but they had letters on them. So instead of where, where you have the Mayan symbols now, you just had letters on them. And it was more like a casino kind of a feel and you're sliding okay. these things, trying to make words. Uh, and you had like, it was almost like on... Um, uh, on a slot machine where you have like the three lines that score. So mm. you're trying to like get the letters lined up and make words. And it was, it was a really interesting idea, but it was like, I don't know if this can be like a fully fleshed out game because how, how different is it going to be if you're just sliding the letters all the time, but it was such a cool concept. And then Sylvain went and took it away. And the next time I saw him, he had this really cool thing with these sliding Mayan symbols. And yet the temple looked very different. Um, but I was like, well, what's this? And the first time I saw it, I was like, this looks like, like an Indiana Jones adventure kind of thing. Right. So he yeah. really matched um, the mechanics with the the theme really well. And it really felt like thematic that way and played it. And I, I had a lot of feedback for him on like what could be a little bit better and what was really cool about it. And um, played it a bunch of times and he asked me to uh, to join him. He said, yeah, I'm kind of stuck on some things. I'd, I'd love to bring you on as a co-designer because we had started working on some games together at that point. And so that was really fortunate because I, I love the game. I, as soon as he said that, I'm like, yes, I love this game. Like, And I can see some real potential in it. Um, so it, it came to be all through these sliding letters at the start. And then it was just a, a series of different puzzles and different kind of modular boards that we added to try to figure out what was the, the best thing 
that that players could do um, that varied a little bit, but kind of stuck with kind of the same um, mechanics of drawing the drawing the tokens and and trying to move along and trying to get in and out. And then the boulders came late in the game. Actually, we we hadn't figured that part out yet, and that just that just did it for the game because it really just gave that sense of tension. And there's always that point where everybody's kind of like. Oh, do I take one more turn to go get some more stuff or do I head back? And it's, it's, it's agonizing. And then people are trying to get back just before the boulders roll in. So um, we're really trying to capture that tension. Um, and, and I think uh, we've hopefully accomplished that. Oh, it was tense. <laughs> That's, <laughs> that is clear. So when you did this campaign and I'm, I'm hoping you could provide advice, maybe to some other people out there that are looking at doing their own games. And there's a big difference between when you obviously sign with uh, another publisher and you just sign, you hand them over and let them take care of it. And when you're self-publishing games, right? Yeah. Um, is there any advice you can give to people on uh, specifically around bootstrapping, right? And on being able to, to, to save as much cost as possible going into doing campaigns like this, especially when you're, it's uh, being self-financed. For sure. Yeah. Cause I mean, as, as much as you're saving some costs, like not going out and getting it printed and like just trying to sell it on like Amazon or website or, yeah. or whatever, um, you have less capital costs, but you can definitely spend a lot of money between, you know, your video and your graphic or graphic design and art and everything else. So, um, some things you can do is you can do your own video. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, videos can be very, very expensive. Um, so depending on your game, especially if it's something you want to show off, like with Mayan Curse and our, our previous one, 14 Frantic Minutes, we really wanted to show people playing the game. We wanted to see, wanted people to physically see, like, this is an actual physical game. It's not just something like digital. Um, this is how people are, do, uh, are doing it. This is how your experience is going to be like mm -hmm. and intersperse some, some different things. Um, story blocks, which you actually told me about has been great. Yeah. We put in some, um, um, some stock footage in of actual people walking in like, um, like jungles and, and, uh, yeah, mine and things like Cal, I think was some of that videos from, right. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So, um, so there, there's those kind of components, um, as well, but yeah, like you can save a lot of money if you can record it yourself, you just have to, you know, have good lighting and have a good script, what you want to say, that kind yeah. of thing. And where'd you uh, get your voiceover? Oh, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, it was actually um, Ori Kagan, who I've worked with before on my Relics of Rajvahara videos. He recommended um, uh, P uh, Peter, um, who was who did the um, the voiceover. So okay. yeah, uh, it's 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 great uh, having connections too, and people who can make those recommendations. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't super expensive, but it added an extra kind of feel or element to the game, uh, which which I couldn't do necessarily with my own voice or <laughs> yeah. Oh, the voiceover is great, and I think you hit it on the nose there. I think. Uh, any advice you give to anybody, anyone out there would be network. If you can network and meet people in the industry and reach out to people in the industry and just, you know, if you have a question and make sure they're sincere questions, not, Hey, here's a leading question to get you to give me free advertising on your Facebook page, but actually ask a question of, Hey, does anybody know where I could go for voiceovers or does anybody have someone they could recommend things like that? The more you can network, the, the more the, the answers are going to be at your fingertips. Right. Yeah. Like there is so much I don't know, but there's a lot of stuff I know where to find it and, and who to to connect to, to, to get the answers quickly. And sure. um, so it is so important to build that network out and your video. I don't want to underplay that. I mean, a, your video is great. Uh, so oh, it comes across very, very good, very polished. Um, but you're showing the actual game. And this is what I kind of still scratch my head over and no disservice to the animated. Cause I know there's, you know, or he's one of them that does animated videos, right. For a living. Yeah. Um, but if you don't have the budgets, you were further ahead to put that money into advertising, uh, and, and shoot it practically. And 
you know, and I always use um, Tanner Yarrow of Yarrow Studios. You know, he's now done yet another campaign that's in the millions of dollars. I think he's closing in on $3 million with his game fold uh, tables. Folding table, yeah. Yeah, but most of his videos are shot practically where he shows the actual thing, right? And, you know, you can do that. If you go and get a nice production copy made, whether through GameCrafter or however you're getting your, your prototype made, you can shoot that practically on it. Most iPhones are, 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 are great quality. If you get the right lighting, you can have some good quality. Or maybe you know somebody out there that's good at doing video or doing photos. It is way better than you. And maybe you pull in some favors, but there's ways you can bootstrap this where those extra dollars you have are going to be better served pumping that into ads because the ads are what are going to drive the backers to the page in the first place in order to get those um they get those pledges. So absolutely. Yeah. And I want to give credit to, to my friend Isaac as well, who's in videography. He helped yeah. with the video. We did all the recording and everything, but he did the kind of finishing touches, Oh, nice. Um, put everything together. Uh, but that's, you know, a much uh, more cost of effective thing than, than getting somebody to just do everything on your own. So we were able to get all the footage and then he just kind of put in the, those finishing touches and did a great job, uh, you know, finishing that up. Oh, that's amazing. Can you talk about what's next? Like what's next up for you, Joe? Like, is it, uh, I mean, I mean, I don't even know where to start. Is there a pro spiel coming up soon or <laughs> is there another game you're working on or what, what's, what's next up for you? Oh, lot, lots of things. Yeah, we were talking uh, before we started recording about Protospiel um, yeah. as well. Protospiel North, when the next one's going to be. So that's probably going to be around May or June. We have to mm. lock in uh, when the date is. But I think the next big event is going to be uh, my next virtual summit, 2024. Um, so I'm I'm starting to do the planning for that and going to be reaching out uh, for, for some guests and getting that all organized uh, very soon as well. So looking forward to doing that. And that'll probably land around February 2024, I'm hoping. Oh, amazing. Well, Joe, congrats so far on this campaign. I mean, gosh, you guys have, I mean, you've already smashed your, uh, your funding goal. So that's a, you know, a relief obviously on day one when you can do oh, yeah. that. And I can't even imagine where this thing is going to end, but you're only halfway into your campaign and uh, it is just growing and growing and growing. So I want to wish you all the best. Can't wait to see where this ends and look forward to seeing you at the next event, my friend. Thanks so much, James. That was a pleasure talking to you and thanks for the kind words. No worries. You take care. Cheers. You too. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time. Thank you.